Welcome to Trending Health, where we provide you with valuable insights and perspectives on the evolving healthcare industry. Brought to you by Dynamic, Trending Health explores industry topics that are real, relevant, and worth discussing. I'm your host, Jen Burke. A lack of clinical and epidemiological data for women, racial, and ethnic groups can lead to an incomplete understanding of disease, therapeutics, and appropriate treatment. Beyond the dangers this presents in the context of safety and efficacy, when it comes to equity, this lack of representation can contribute to diagnostic uncertainty, lower rates of clinical development for conditions most impacting these communities, and enduring disparities in health outcomes. I'm here with Anisio's Global Head of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, Steph Christmas, and special guest Sue Sun, a health equity change agent from Unlocking Eve, to discuss the data biases in healthcare and what can be done on the personal level to overcome these inequities moving forward. Welcome back, Steph, and congratulations on your new role as Anisio's Global Head of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. We're so happy to have you back. And Sue, we're so excited to welcome you onto the podcast as well. Thank you, Jen. Sue, could you start by telling our listeners a little bit about yourself and why you are so passionate about overcoming data biases in the healthcare industry? I I would love to. And I just want to congratulate Stephanie as well. I actually wanted to make an observation about the impact of all our efforts on DEI on health equity. The conversations that we've been having over decades about diversity, equity, and inclusion in the workplace has built this greater awareness and created greater diversity in decision-making roles that in turn allowed us to have a conversation about how we can now do better in specific areas like health equity. So promotions like Stephanie's is important to not only inclusion in the workplace, but also in health equity. So I've been a champion for gender parity in the workplace, and I'll share why I'm now also focusing on gender health equity. So I've been in the pharmaceutical industry for about 15 years, and I made the pivot from financial service consulting because I love the mission of our industry of helping patients to do more and live longer. And with the COVID-19 pandemic, our industry was really able to shine and show all the value that we can bring by bringing vaccines into the marketplace in about one-tenth of the usual time. However, when I found out that the vaccine impacted women's menstrual cycles and that we didn't really know why, it was a catalyst for me to learn more about the disparities in healthcare for women. And with my experiences in data and analytics, I saw that there is an issue where we are making data-driven decision-making, but not always realizing that some data, specifically as it pertains to women, are missing. I also would say that a lot of that data doesn't exist for a lot of different minority groups. It's always surprising to me how much we default to a certain patient profile when we know that there is a wider group of people that the disease actually impacts. Sue, can you give our listeners a sense of what the scale and impact of this missing data is? Absolutely. Can I start with a point about the brain? So our brains are always looking for shortcuts. And in healthcare, it was just simpler to use the male body as the default and think about women as just smaller men. But now we know more. 
So researchers have found sex differences in every tissue and organ system in the human body. There are sex differences in the fundamental mechanical workings of the heart, and there are sex differences in lung capacity. The last 25 years have demonstrably proven that male and female bodies are different down to a cellular level. You know, if we sort of look at that in, in one sort of area, and let's just use hormones as an example. So if the male body is used as a default and the male hormones are very simplistic, men have a 24-hour cycle where their testosterone levels are highest in the morning and lowest in the night. Compare that to a 28-day cycle for women with multiple hormones going up and down. I'm a little bit embarrassed to tell you that I didn't know until recently how the various hormones affect us throughout our 28-day cycles. There are phases when we're more optimistic, when we're more focused, and where we're more resistant to stress. So I'm not sure how many women or men think about this complicated women's hormones can be. We know that having additional context where a woman is in her cycle is helpful, but we have not yet figured out a way to capture this information. And unfortunately, we're still working with data biases preventing us from leveraging any new information. And I think as we even think within, you know, the female or, or people who have uterus, there's so much variation even in those hormone levels. And so thinking about the differences in cycles, thinking about the different impacts of hormone level, even within the population, that is also something that is vitally important for us to consider. Yeah, you're so right, Stephanie. I, obviously, I, there's a little bit of a bias that I'm bringing in terms of gender data equity. The key thing that I'm trying to highlight is that data can tell one story and it could tell many different stories. And so one of the things that we just need to be more diligent about is just being clear on what data do we have and what data might be missing. Such insightful points about what is or maybe is not in the picture when we're looking at some of this clinical and epidemiological data and using it to make extrapolations or make decisions. I think about where the industry is headed when it comes to things like machine learning and artificial intelligence and how these are really data powered engines, right? But if we're not understanding fully what are the data they're using, what are some of the limitations of that data? We can actually end up you know, reinforcing some of the poor habits, poor biases, behaviors of our current healthcare industry and outcomes that we're trying to circumvent entirely using these tools. To your point about machine learning and artificial intelligence, I think the, the key thing we have to be aware of and mindful of is the fact that it's still humans starting that initiative, meaning we're, we're really feeding the machines a certain set of values. And so these biases are going to be translated into machine learning as well. So that's a big piece that I think we all need to grapple with a little bit, that it's not some removed objective thing that's happening. It is programmed by humans. Sue, I'd love if we could dive a little bit more deeply into what are some of the most common biases or heuristics that our brains are operating under that can contribute to these data gaps? In terms of data, I think there's two that I really want to talk about, which is this um, bias around availability bias and then the status quo bias. 
So availability bias is really what it sounds like. It's, it's we have a tendency to just use what is available and we make decisions based on that. And a great example of that is the Addis was a pill that was really marketed as the purple uh, pill for women. It was the Viagra for women. They had a challenge with adverse event with alcohol. And so they needed to do a safety study with it. So out of 25 participants, I hate to tell you that 23 of them were men. And if you were listening, you'd remember me saying that this is a pill for women. And when the pharmaceutical company was pressed a bit to say, why did you have 23 men and only two women for a drug that was for women? Their response was, these are people who came to the clinical trial recruitment. And so that's a little bit where I think we just need to be aware that even though they had a goal of having recruitment done by a certain time frame, when it's not meeting the needs of your, your goal, ultimately, then you need to take a step back. And so those are the things where I think you need to just have a bit of a nudge and, and really make sure that you are designing your studies in a way that you have the right participants and not just default to availability. If I could just continue on with the status quo bias, we tend to keep things the way that they always are. It's always, this is the standard. We've always done it that way. <laughs> An example that I wanted to highlight was the catalyst example of the COVID vaccines and it impacting Mensi information. I had a conversation with somebody really trying to advocate for any time that we're collecting information with women, how about we collect Mensi information? And he was very clear on, he wants the science to dictate whether we collect Mensi information. And I was left thinking, except for the fact that we don't collect it, so we don't know if it actually impacts it, so how is the science going to lead us to deciding that we need to collect it? So it's a little bit circular. So in terms of any time we're doing things that we've always done, there's a bit of a proactive action planning that I think we can all participate in to just say, are the same assumptions, are they still serving us well? And let's just make sure that we're thinking through what's changed that might lend us to think about doing it slightly differently. And that actually connects me back to Vinamic's purpose. We believe there's a better way. And so always kind of challenging what that status quo is, always thinking about the possibility of what we could be missing and a better, more efficient, more effective way to do anything. And so I always come back to that, even though I'm shifting into this broader Anisio role, I still keep that at my core of, is there a better way that we should be doing it? And is there a better way that we could impact health equity and really drive better outcomes for more people? And I think this better way is something we're grappling with, you know, as a healthcare industry right now, the events of 2020, the COVID epidemic, the social inequities we saw really highlighted here in the States have really pushed the, the industry to think about health equity in a regalvanized way. And now we're reaching a point in our maturity where we're starting to see these larger initiatives, like some of the policies from the FDA and the NIH to encourage diversity and inclusion when it comes to clinical trials, really start to, to take shape and take form. Sue, could you tell our listeners about some of the progress that's been made to date? 
the good news is there are a lot more initiatives around clinical trial diversity and using technology, we have decentralized trials that's really trying to get to the heart of some of the challenges for people to get access to clinical trials. The bad news is, as it relates to gender health equity, that sex deaggregated health data is not always available. So think about this. We know that there are cellular differences, as we talked about, between women and men. And when a clinical trial fails and we don't have sex disaggregated data, we're throwing away potential medicines that may work on women, but may not work on men. So the efficacy in clinical trials could be huge if we collected and analyzed data by sex. That reminds me, Sue, a little bit about some of the movement we've seen in the industry when it comes to biomarkers, right? And really starting to carve out those specific populations in which certain therapies, certain types of treatments can be more efficacious than they might seem if you're looking at the population on the whole. And if we're drawing parallels from some of the progress that's been made with these biomarker data and the ability to include more information to look at the data cut by, by sex or ethnicity or by other types of data that historically had not been included, we might find new purposes, new efficacies, new ways to capitalize, for lack of a better word, on existing science or science that maybe looked not as efficacious at at the whole level or at the homogenous level, but actually can show really great opportunity and progress for specific subpopulations. We know that real change doesn't only come from the top. It doesn't only come from policy. It can come from this very sort of personal level, like we talked about when we're thinking about those, those biases of availability or those status quo biases as well. I'm wondering, Steph, what are a few things that healthcare leaders can do personally to help overcome these biases and drive meaningful change for the industry? That's a that's a great question and one that I get a lot and one that it's important to talk about. You know, we make these connections in our heads and a lot of time aren't even aware that we're making them. And so there are three main things that I I tend to ask people to do. And one is, is personal introspection on where your biases might exist. Where might you be only telling one narrative or one story based on your lived experiences? Then once you kind of recognize those, once you, again, think about Are you only choosing people that are close by? Are you only choosing people that are like you? Why might that be? And and taking that time to really think about it. Once you start to see what those are, the next thing I always say to do is to create counter narratives and find stories that may show a different image of what you're used to seeing. And what that does is that breaks down the shortcuts that you're making. You now have more data to create a fuller picture and fuller perspectives. So it's great if you are seeing a lot of different images of a certain type of people or a certain identity doing different things. And so you're not always seeing them uh, sitting within one type of role, the drug dealer, the terrorist. You're seeing them as a doctor. You're seeing them as the advocate. And once you start to see all these counter narratives, your mind actually starts to break down the shortcuts because it's starting to see it doesn't always work. The last thing is to cultivate mindfulness and to pause and think when your body perceives threats, it's going to make decisions faster. 
And so what you want to be thinking about is how can you create space in your mind for those decisions? And there's been a lot of really interesting work that some law enforcement agencies have gone down around creating mindfulness practice for their officers so that they can pause before they reach for their gun and they can be more rational and less reactive. And one thing that organizations should consider is not sacrificing quality and efficacy for speed. And so our default is to try and move quickly and to try and get these drugs to market faster. But we want to be thinking about, again, what we we might be missing. And that might require a little more time. That might require a little more effort and a little more capital for us to be able to get to the right answer. And so I think it's really important for organizations, again, to have the the courage and the foresight to think about how this will impact more communities than just the one they might be thinking about. I'd like to, Jen, really remind your listeners of just how far we have come and our progress within sort of DEI and the workplace is allowing us to get a little bit closer and closing the gap in health equity as well. So one thing that I wanna highlight is in 2019, for the first time ever, the majority of medical students are now women. So this gets us to a place where we're gonna have women at the table making certain decisions. So let's just stay appreciative and continue to do what we've done to drive greater DEI in the workplace. What I heard, Steph, you really talking about is social change happens because we as individuals change. If you like to see improved health equity, I'd like for you to consider three actions. One is proactively look for missing data. And as Steph really talked about, that mindfulness, that ability to pause and just really assess the situation. So before you make a critical decision, using data, taking that moment to just sort of say what might be missing and having that introspection and being honest, that's gonna be really important. And then the second step is once you sort of look for that missing data, having the will and the courage to call it out and to do something about it. It's, it's one thing to know that it's missing, it's, it's another to really advocate for it. And the third action is something that I was thinking about when everything in in the news is about chat GPT. The thing that I feel like gets a little bit whitewashed, if you will, is the GPT stands for Generative Pre-Trained Transformer. So what that means is the AI is constantly learning right? So be open to learning new information and adapt your thinking. So we're talking about what the machine can do. And I think it's now time for humans to continue to stay ahead of that. So I'll end with Maya Angelou's quote of, do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. What a powerful call to action. I just want to thank you both so much for today's discussion. You've certainly given me and hopefully our listeners a lot to consider when it comes to how we personally can move the needle to advance health equity. And for those listeners who are interested in learning about Steph's work with Anisio or Sue's work with Unlocking Eve and Sky Coaching, please be sure to check out the links in our show notes. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Trending Health. For links to resources discussed in the episode, to subscribe to the Trending Health Podcast, 
and explore if Dynamic can help your company manage ongoing healthcare industry change, visit trendinghealth.com. Tune into the next episode where we look forward to providing you with more insights on the healthcare industry.